My big hope is that as AI augments skill, we learn to value other things in ourselves and others beyond ability. We've spent a lot of time venerating dedication for good reason, but we've kind of done that, right? I feel like there are other things to celebrate about being human besides what you can produce, what you can do, how much you can sacrifice. I think there are things like creativity and freedom and joy and expression and things that make children children that we adore and miss in ourselves and lose over time. That if AI really does augment skill, kind of take these things away from being survival questions every day, maybe over a generation or two, we can start to place a higher priority on the things that make us us as opposed to what we can do or what others can do for us. From a chronic illness to a meteoric rise as an AI collaborative artist, meet Claire Silver. Claire is an anonymous artist who works with oil, acrylic, collage, photography, and different digital mediums. By blending classical styles and mythos into her art, she collaboratively produces work that feels at once familiar and strange exploring themes of innocence, trauma, the hero's journey, and how our view of them will change in an increasingly transhumanist future. Claire's art can be found in the permanent collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, in addition to being featured at Sotheby's London and Christie's New York. Her work has been exhibited in galleries, museums, and festivals around the world, and she's been featured in the New York Times, Wired, Fortune, NPR, and countless podcasts. I first came across Claire on Twitter, and you're in for a treat today to hear from her imaginative mind. She's a deep thinker and is vocal in her belief that the rise of AI has ushered in a new paradigm, replacing the barrier of skill with taste. For those who watch the video version of this interview, you'll see Claire's avatar that uses motion capture in real time to reflect her facial gestures. Today, you'll also hear Claire's origin story on how AI changed the trajectory of her life, providing her a vehicle for expression with her chronic illness, and why she believes in radical accessibility. We also discuss Claire's online anonymity, transhumanism, and her perspective on how artists can find their unique signature. You'll also discover what qualia is and how Claire sees it as AGI's litmus test how she aims to evoke the sensation of qualia in her art and the power of touchstone experiences. Join the conversation where Claire shares her passion, art, and childlike wonderment of AI. Enjoy. But have you ever thought, what if this is all just a dream? Welcome to Creativity Squared. Discover how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence in your inbox, on YouTube, and on your preferred podcast platform. Hi, I'm Helen Todd, your host, and I'm so excited to have you join the weekly conversations I'm having with amazing pioneers in the space. The intention of these conversations is to ignite our collective imagination at the intersection of AI and creativity to envision a world where artists thrive. Claire, welcome to Creativity Squared. It's so good to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. 
For our listeners, uh, this is actually a very exciting episode because Claire is our first anonymous artist. And for anyone watching the YouTube video, um, we have Claire's avatar that's responding in real time with a face mask. So it's very exciting to have Claire for so many reasons. But for those who are meeting you for the first time, uh, can you share your backstory and origin story of how you came to be the AI artist that you are today? Yeah, uh, I definitely can. And it's uh, a little long and winding, so I'll try to be succinct. Um, so essentially, I hate to start with a downer, but essentially I had a different career um, in something unrelated. And then I got hit with a very serious chronic illness um, that took my ability to work. And so I kind of moped for a few years. I kind of laid around and was sad and was on the internet a lot. And then eventually I got bored, um, as anyone who has a chronic illness will tell you eventually happens. And so I started teaching myself to paint. Uh, and this started with like some just basic abstract, those acrylic pours that you would see on Instagram, people would pour paint in a cup and then pour it on a canvas. It was a thing a few years ago. I started doing that as a way to kind of express myself without worrying about judging myself against things I could do before I was sick, right? And so as I was doing that, I also was watching Westworld, uh, which had just come out at the time. And uh, it's a show about AI. Uh, and it really got me thinking about a future that had solved for illnesses like mine, a future where AI had fixed a lot of these ancient human evils that have plagued us for all of time, that what would the future look like if those were gone, right? So that just totally fascinated me. So I was online a lot, and I was painting, and I was thinking about AI, and those three things converged into me finding a website called Art Breeder. Uh, it was then called Gan Breeder, which was a very early website to make art with AI uh, without typing. There was no text. Uh, it was pre-text to image, which is what is used now primarily. Um, but it also didn't require any programming knowledge, which had been the kind of bottleneck for everyone before then. It was totally accessible, mostly curation-based. You would choose images you liked and kind of mix them together and make new generations from there. So I made 30,000, 40,000 images in about a week. Uh, didn't eat, didn't sleep, totally obsessed. Um, and that's what got me started on the, uh, the journey with AI. I started posting them to Twitter and wasn't sure if anyone would see them as art like I did. It was slow, but they, they, they did with time more and more. And now certainly. Yeah, that, that's amazing. You're, you're not the only guest who's been on Creativity Squared where AI has changed the trajectory of their career. Uh, so it's so great to, to hear stories like this. And I know um, before we started uh, recording, you know, part of your story is that you have been successful in kind of this rags to riches um you know, a success with your AI art. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that. Cause I know in just like talking to some artists um, who might be on the edge and I get the question a lot, like how do people make money with AI art? And I think you have a really good, you know, case study and how to do that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, so I grew up, my family made about $12,000 a year. Um, so well below the, the poverty line. Um, and my dad was disabled, so we couldn't go out and make more money or it would mess up the, the structure for him being able to get his medication that he needed. It was a really broken system. Um, so I grew up on food stamps. I grew up on donations from churches to, to get clothes for school from thrift stores. Um, and uh, in this old 
dilapidated farmhouse that I actually absolutely love. Um, but you know, walls caving in with time kind of old, um, it's pretty extreme. And so my, my area of the country where I grew up in, um, I'm us based, there's about a 6% chance for class mobility, uh, in a lifetime. That's what they report anyway. I'd be surprised if it was that high. Um, there's kind of the options of work at Walmart, uh, or work in the fields, um, farm work, uh, factory. Not, we don't have any factories, but that kind of work. Uh, and that's about it. Uh, my graduating class was 30 people, right? Very small town. So I didn't have the opportunity to go to art school. I mean, I, I maybe I could have if I'd really tried, um, but I had good grades and I, you know, I went to the local school, state school for college. Um, the quality of education was pretty low um, in the whole area. There was no opportunity for making networking or connections or it's just kind of a, a black hole in some ways um, for success. So I feel like everybody kind of feels like they have something great inside them and that when they grow up, they'll, they'll realize that and kind of show the world, right? And um, that just isn't how it works out for most people. That's kind of a fairy tale. Um, for me, finding AI was finding a way to express the inner self that I had cultivated alone for many years in a very small place with nothing to do, meaning it was like I have a very deep, rich imagination, if nothing else in life, because um, I was bored so often. Um, and being able to share that um, visually through art was something I always wanted to do. Um, but the time it takes to dedicate yourself to a particular medium, one medium, let's say charcoal, is a lifetime, right? And with my chronic illness, it just really wasn't possible for me. You know, I know some people do things like draw with their feet when they lose their hands, and that's incredible, but there's a reason those are stories that I know as someone that, you know, like those are huge outliers. So for AI, what it gave me was accessibility to express myself um, outside of the confines of the system that has sort of built up for how we recognize art, how we give visibility to art, um, and people in general. Uh, I'm really radical about that accessibility now uh, because it changed my life. I'm doing very well. I bought my mom a house. I've always wanted to get my mom a house um, and not live in that situation. I moved her closer to home, to her family. Um, I've been able to travel outside the U.S. for the first time in my life, um, and I now have a team um, that I can employ, um, which is so far beyond imagination um, for me or from anyone from my area. And I have some thoughts that we can talk about later so I don't go on forever um, about how we can make money with AI, how things can kind of change and how they likely will stratify and kind of figuring out how to innovate in that, how to find your place in that, because I think it opens up more possibilities than it closes. Um, I really do. I love that. And congratulations um, that you are this, uh, you know, American dream story almost uh, in, in that regard. Um, I also, uh, to your previous comment, love Westworld too, and love that that's part of your, your story. So <laughs> <laughs> I already missed the series uh, when, it, when it ended. So you got into AI in 2018, which was kind of before the Gen AI blew up and was kind of around the NFT craze. Uh, but I find it super interesting 
um, that you decided to stay anonymous too. So can you walk us through kind of that, that decision as well? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, on my time when I was sad on the internet, when I was sick, I went where a lot of sad people on the internet go, which is 4chan. Um, and if you're not familiar with 4chan, it's an anonymous website to post images and talk back and forth. And um, because you're anonymous, there's a lot of awful stuff that goes on there. But because you're anonymous, there's a lot of also really great ideas and concepts on there that are not tied to who you are in real life as a person. And because of that, ideas and concepts are what shine there, what get you noticed, what get people engaging with you. It's your ideas. That I loved. I um, always felt kind of like, you know, I tried a few times. I went to college. I entered contests for writing, um, which I loved at the time. Couldn't do it after my chronic illness very well affected that. Um, and whenever I would win those contests and I would get the opportunity to go to these events and meet these people that were from different circumstances, I felt like I didn't belong. It was like imposter syndrome because I was from where I was from and, and grew up how I did. Uh, on 4chan, anonymously, that didn't matter. Nobody knew that. It was just my ideas that mattered, and I loved that. Um, I feel like that culture has kind of continued with crypto as well, with NFTs and with currencies, cryptocurrencies. And um, I'm seeing it a bit in AI as well, not in the you know thought leaders so much, but in the artists that are making work with AI because of the massive backlash that it's received. A lot of them are choosing to remain separate from their real life identities and finding some freedom in what they can express that way. And then there's always, you know, in real life, I could look like your kindergarten teacher or your horrible ex-girlfriend or your sister-in-law. And there are pieces of baggage that come attached to any of those positive and negative that I would rather just not have attached. I'd rather you imagine me however you want to imagine me, um, essentially. Well, I, I want to read a quote uh, that I got from another interview. And it says, today, her pink-haired crypto punk is among the most well-known and well-admired pieces of iconography in the entire crypto art canon. With inedible style and imagination, she has catapulted to the forefront of crypto art experimentation writ large. How does this feel when you hear this? Uh <laughs> I don't think that I've been able to internalize things like that. I'm someone that's maybe not the best at taking compliments anyway. I just kind of like, oh, thanks, and shrink a bit, you know. Um, so hearing things like that, which I hear increasingly often lately, which is such a blessing, um, I'm, I'm learning to try and take it in stride and with grace, but it's it's not something I can really wrap my head around. It's just all happened in the last it's only been a few years, right? It's been kind of meteoric. And so I, I'm not sure humans are meant to adapt to change that quickly, positive change that quickly. Um, but I'm, I'm having a wonderful time. I'm very happy that people resonate with me. That's wonderful. And so for, for those who haven't seen your artwork, how would you describe your, your aesthetic um, and the type of AI and mixed uh, traditional art that you do? Yeah, so it's kind of a tough question because my aesthetic shifts quite a bit. Uh, I have work that looks photographic. I have work that is very clearly uh, not like abstract um, work. I have some that's more anime inspired or video game inspired, sort of nostalgic for the millennials and, and Gen X and Gen Z. Um, and I have some that's very serious and, and very um, powerful, I hope, in terms of uh, concept. 
So I don't really have one aesthetic. However, because you make so many images when you're working seriously with AI, like I said, that first week I made 30, 40,000, right? Because you make so many images, if you want to be serious, you can't share all of those images. Of those 30, 40,000, I think I shared five or six, maybe, originally, um, which meant I had to curate them down from 30, 40,000 to, let's say, five to 10. That is painful. It feels like you're throwing away your children, um, but it also teaches you your taste very quickly and very strongly. You learn what you like, what you don't, what you like most when you like several things, and kind of what that says about you, what patterns and motifs and symbols are present in your art throughout uh, that you keep choosing, um, what color schemes, what kind of, what, what goes into it repeatedly when you choose from that many. Um, so I, I have found that I have a thread that goes through all of my work where people will see my work without knowing it's mine and say, that looks like a Claire piece, um, even in wildly different mediums or, or aesthetics. And I think that's because there's, your taste is your fingerprint, right? It's your artist's signature. It's all the things you love or that have happened to you or affected you that make you who you are. Uh, and why you choose those things when you put them into your work. That's you, right? So it's your soul of the art is in the piece. Um, so as for how I make my work, I work with AI in everything. Um, but I also work with 3D in conjunction with AI. Um, I work with music, uh, literature. I'll do traditional painting um, abstracts and take photographs of those paintings and upload them and mix them into the AI, either by training my own model or by layering them together in Procreate, uh, animating things. I, I kind of video, I, I kind of do everything. I'm interested in sort of spreading the medium I love into everything else um, to innovate uh, on both sides. So yeah, there's really not much of a limit on, on where I go with it, I guess. Well, and, and one random question um, about how you use your art to train, because I, I came across this at a presentation I saw a couple of weeks ago on when uh, the, the large language models create synthetic output, which is a lot of the AI art, and then that AI art then trains the model back. There's this thing called poisoning, where when the models are trained with synthetic media, it really, um, uh, what is it, deteriorates the output of the quality. Uh, and they showed it, which I had never seen before, that it's really drastic. And I was curious if you've ever run into that, just the volume of art that you sit on and training your own models, uh, just out of pure curiosity. Yeah, so I have. Not poisoning, that's an intentional effort. I think nightshade is what they're calling it. It's an intentional effort. However, um, so when you train your own model, you can do things like train a LoRa or... Um, an inversion on top of it. So what that is, is like you train a model and that's like the bread of your sandwich. And then you can also make uh, a Laura or an inversion and that's like the lettuce and tomato in the sandwich. It's still the sandwich, but it now has the flavor of this other stuff that you've trained into it, right? Without affecting the bread itself. <laughs> it's separate, but it all makes up the sandwich. Um, so when I've trained my own models on AI work, I haven't had any issue um, with you know, this sort of look that it provides you're talking about that poisons it. However, AI works by kind of 
it works by concepts, which are trained onto tokens. Um, and so when you, I'm trying to think how to simplify this. When you have a particular token, say red, again and again and again and again and again, uh, by having the sandwich be red and the tomatoes be red and the lettuce be red, then it begins to lose track of what a sandwich is and how to, how to make a sandwich. You understand what I mean? So when I've trained my own model and then trained my own Laura and then trained my own inversion, uh, textual inversion on the same set of data, then it begins to lose track of what those concepts are. And it begins to corrupt the data in ways that produce honestly very interesting visual artifacts. I'd be really surprised if that didn't become an art movement of its own is sort of this AI specific, uh, entropy, which is cool. Um, but it can do that for sure. Um, but if you're just training a model on your own work, whether that's AI images or otherwise, it, it would not corrupt it unless you were really maxing out your values or repeating, repeating them a million times. Yeah. That, that's so fascinating. And, and I guess it makes sense too, if it's all pattern recognition and the signals for what the pattern is kind of gets the wires crossed. Um, well, one thing that you mentioned that one of your favorite pieces is called Shores of Immortality. And I'd love to kind of hear why that's your favorite piece. And maybe if you could describe it for our viewers and listeners, um, especially since most people just hear the audio for our interviews. It's very different from a lot of my work. I made it for a super rare exhibition in New York um, with super rare Mika, who is a, a wonderful, talented curator. Um, and that theme was artifacts. The, the theme of the show was artifacts. And so it was kind of looking at ways in which AI will change our future and future historians might look back on this time and uh, human history in general and, uh, and kind of see them as artifacts, see these so this piece in particular, Shores of Immortality, I'd had kind of rattling around in my head for a few years and um, finally brought it out. Um, it's a three-dimensional looking piece, looks sort of like a, a marble statue of dozens of figures dressed um, at the bottom. They're sort of like Greco-Roman era, and then as you go up, it becomes more like early 1900s era. And then at the very top, it's, it's modern. Um, so it's this pile of figures, dozens of figures of humans that are all struggling, just exerting themselves to their absolute last drop to push each other up, to push up the next generation on top. So they get higher and higher and higher, and the ones at the bottom are just crushed. And at the very, very top, there's a woman outstretching her arm and there's a few other people outstretching their arms. And on top of their hands, uh, there's a little boy and a little girl in modern clothes. And they're about to take a pretty long step over open air where they could fall to the bottom of the pile into some water. Um, onto, they're about to take this step onto a staircase uh, that kind of ascends out of the picture. So that's how I feel about AI. I feel like all of human history has been a story of us struggling and fighting and overcoming to push the next generation a little higher than us, to make it a little better than it was for us. And because AI is going to help us with so many things that have hurt us over the years, for example, my chronic illness, uh, for example, 
many illnesses. And so I believe, and people will argue with me, but I think that it'll help with income inequality, um, like I faced as well. I think that there's a lot in the senescence movement, which if you haven't heard of that, is kind of a fight against aging, a fight against the processes that come with aging. It's extending the human lifetime, that kind of thing. Um, that's going to make major breakthroughs with AI. And then there's things like there's a company currently working on uh, learning the language of whales by training the sounds they make for social interaction into a, a, a GPT-like process and then playing it back to them to see if we can communicate. So interspecies communication, I think, will go a long way in sort of changing how we think about life um, and how much that matters. My big hope is that as AI augments skill, we learn to value other things in ourselves and others beyond ability. We've spent a lot of time venerating dedication for good reason, but we've kind of done that, right? I feel like there are other things to celebrate about being human besides what you can produce, what you can do, how much you can sacrifice. I think there are things like creativity and freedom and joy and expression and things that make children children that we adore and miss in ourselves and lose over time. That if AI really does augment skill, kind of take these things away from being survival questions every day, maybe over a generation or two, we can start to place a higher priority on the things that make us us as opposed to what we can do or what others can do for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I have chills listening to you. That was so beautifully said. And I find it interesting too, uh, my father was disabled and I know how much that impacted the trajectory of his life. Having your chronic illness, how much do you think that that has really influenced your perspective on moving for, for your line that you have taste is the new skill to like move beyond ability? I feel like those might be closely tied together as part of your story. Yeah, I. so when my illness onset, they thought I had had a stroke. Uh, There's some neurological complications involved in this um, autoimmune kind of thing. And so I had to relearn how to walk. I had to relearn how to talk. I didn't know if I would ever be the same. Um, and I was in bed for basically three years, um, taking loads of medication every day. Um, and feeling just awful. And not being able to express that pain because I wasn't really able to write. I had cognitive word recall issues. I had a lot of problems there. Um, not being able to get that out in a way that felt true to myself was so painful. Um, and again, AI kind of gave that back to me. And I'm in remission now. I'm doing much better. Um, but it took a long time. And so... For me personally, it's had a huge impact, but even outside of me, you know, even outside of illness, I'm thinking of the first exhibition that I did with uh, Accelerate Art, which is a nonprofit um, that I founded uh, with Ben Roy, and now it's run by Spuma, who is the executive director, who is wonderful. Um, it's a nonprofit for emerging artists, so I did an exhibition in New York of emerging artists' work, and there was a security guard there because there are screens you know and, and gotta have security and on the third day of him guarding these he said uh you know i really love 
all of this work. I, I really love looking at it. I always wanted to make art, but I can't even draw a stick figure. And he's like, you know, 45 and strong looking and, you know, probably has a fine life, but it's amazing to me that came out of him. It was like this insecure, smaller kind of voice admitting something maybe he hadn't said out loud. And I said, well, let's, let's make a, a Dolly image together right now on my phone. Uh, Dolly is an AI you can use from your browser for those that don't know. And so he didn't know what it was, but he said, uh, okay. And so I pulled it up and I asked him to describe a scene and I typed it in and then I pressed uh, generate and it created this image. And it was an image that I never would have made or thought to have made. It wasn't mine. It was his, right? And it was a guy that ended up looking quite a lot like him standing in the rain at night in Times Square and all of the neon lights were reflecting around him. And it was this very contemplative singular kind of moment and he saw it and he got emotional like he lit up like a christmas tree he was so happy and then he was kind of choked up and then he said can you send it to me i can't wait to show my wife when i get home i i i've never made anything it's amazing and so it's like i'm so interested in what people for whatever reason who haven't been able to have access to the tools of expression uh, or sharing that the conjunction of AI and social media. Um, I'm so interested in what these people have to say when given the tools to do so, um, as opposed to being interested in, you know, uh, an art and our graduates, um, what they have to say. Not that I don't think that's amazing, but I feel like, God, the new perspectives that will come to the world when people that have never had access to the tools of expression like this or the time or the, the ability are able to. And, and when you say radical accessibility, is, is that what you just said kind of captures that? Or is there another way that you would expand on radical accessibility? No, I think radical accessibility does it. I think that accessibility breeds innovation. The more people are, are using something, the more people will decide to make it better or change it or innovate it in some way. Um, so my goal with AI is always to make it as open source, accessible, easy to use, and uh, deep in terms of possibilities um, as we can get it. Um, you know, I can type something into Midjourney, and I have done that, and minted that work for sale. Um, and it's sold for as much as my work that I've gone in and trained my own model and my own Laura and on my own source material and done all of my, you know, very deep. It goes as deep as you want it to. There's a whole skill set associated with that as well, actually. Um, but it's sold for as much. People have resonated with it as much as that. So I love that because I love that skill is not the delineating factor. It doesn't matter if it took me five minutes or five hours or five days. What matters is the idea and the aesthetic and the message and how much it's resonating with the viewer. Um, we should be valuing that over over skill, I think. Uh, and I, I know you have in a lot of places, taste is the new skill, which seems to capture that too. But I'd love for you to kind of expand on that uh, as well. Mm, so all of the ideas that I've already expressed, as well as AI is not going away. It will continue to augment skill in many ways and many fields moving forward. And so if the playing field is level, what's going to delineate you is your taste, which is your artist fingerprint. It is your signature. It is you. Um, so finding that taste, in my case, by curating 30,000 pieces down to five or whatever, um, that's an easy way to do it. 
but there are lots of other ways. But finding your own taste is finding your voice. Um, and the clearer that you can make that, uh, the more that people that are still finding their voice will resonate with that. You bring people to you that are more like you than you could imagine because they'll um, see themselves in what you make with AI. So taste, um, you know, I'm not sure that it can be learned outside of doing it yourself. I'm not sure it can be taught. It certainly can't be bought. Um, and I don't even know that it's, it's a skill outside of, again, just self-curation to learn yourself. It's really, taste is really about learning yourself. But I think it's going to be a hugely in-demand skill, quote-unquote, in the future. Um, when the playing fields, even people that have taste uh, are going to be the people that are in-demand. I know when we spoke prior to the interview uh, that I mentioned that I'm a big Wachowski fan and Lana Wachowski in one of her interviews said something along the lines of the aesthetic choice reveals the artist. And I feel like that's very similar to how you describe taste is the the aesthetic revealing. Uh, and I think you said earlier, like the soul of the artist. So that that's really, uh, really beautiful. You have so many themes that you explore. And I know one thing I appreciate about you in our conversations is that you really think deeply about these subjects. And one of the, the themes that you explore is transhumanism. And uh, we've done a blog on our website before uh, on this, but we haven't actually talked about it on the show yet. So I was like curious for those who might be hearing about the, the term transhumanism for the first time, if you could define that and also kind of how you're thinking about it right now in this moment in time too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a sticky subject, but I would love to. So I'll start out by saying I'm not a fan of transhumanism in that I see some definite limits uh, that I would like to be there, but they won't, right? That's the, the, the caveat is uh, it's inevitable. Um, so, okay, what transhumanism is. Transhumanism is the idea that over time, um, humans will integrate with AI um, or technology in broadly in a way that kind of changes our, our species um, so if we had a homo sapiens moment um, in the past and became what we are, technology will kind of provide the same thing. And so that would be a, a transhuman, would be someone that is partially technology and partially human. It's a, it's a different species almost. I think that's inevitable. Uh, I think that's the way we're going and there's nothing that I can do about that. Um, and there are positives and there are negatives with that, but it's coming either way. So the key is to make sure that the technology becomes as much like the best parts of us as possible over the next generation, um, as opposed to us becoming more like the technology. So it's not that we need to become more efficient to compete with AI, it's that AI needs to understand abstract emotion and why it's important to, to humans and to retain in us as humans or compassion or... Uh, beauty, right? Um, if we're going to integrate, then it's it's important. But I, I do think it's happening either way. Um, and so I, I, I say on my website that I, I'm not making statements on whether AI is good or bad. I'm a, a caveman painting fire um, because that's how I feel. It's AI is fire. Fire can burn down your house or it can heat you in winter. It's not good or bad. It just is. Um, AI just is. And it's going to continue to be forever uh, until we aren't probably. So 
Yeah, that's uh, transhumanism. It's a sticky, sticky subject, but that's how I feel on it. Well, and and just for our listeners and viewers who may not know, like there there are companies like Neuralink, which is actually an Elon Musk company, um, that have FDA approval here in the U.S. to start putting chips inside human brains. Um, and there's already a lot of use cases, um, actually, for accessibility of you know adding. Um, prosthetics uh, that your minds can control and stuff. So at this juncture of transhumanism, like the technology is already kind of there and we'll probably just see it mm-hmm. spread more as well. And, and I, I should say too that like up until the brain, I feel like everything is not only permissible, but should be encouraged. So if you have a failing heart and you can get a 3D printed heart or a prosthetic AI powered heart, that's a, that's a net good for people. If you can take out um, genetic sequences, which again, that gets sticky, but if you can take out genetic sequences prior to birth that cause uh, children to die in early age, early life, um, you should do it. Those kind of things are absolutely, when it gets to the brain, it gets a little tricky. Um, and because of it's, it's because of the ship of Theseus problem. So the idea of that is if you have two ships, one is this ship that's named and one isn't, and you replace a board on the named ship with a board on the not named ship, it's still the named ship. But if you replace all the boards, it's no longer the named ship, it's the other ship. So at what point in replacing the boards does it become the the second ship instead of the first ship? And that's the point you're supposed to stop when it comes to uh, transhumanism, according to me, anyway. Um, we haven't found that point yet. In the moment in time that we find ourselves of the sci-fi becoming reality and blurring the lines between the two, uh, I, I find it a fascinating place. It kind of rings back Gattaca. Do you remember that film? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so good. I, I love that film. But one thing I was thinking about the other night is if we put chips in our brains and then the computers reach AGI and then they can start controlling us with chips in the brains. What does that mean? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, yeah, there's well, a lot of scenarios that open up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they, they have also um, the ability now to, if I look at an image and I go into an MRI and the MRI assisted with AI scans my brain and I'm thinking of the image, it can recreate the image that I'm thinking of. So we're already there. Yeah, and you can think of the terrifying implications and also really cool implications for that. But uh, yeah, I I never said AI wasn't um, scary in its possibilities, just that it's equally or more positive in what it can do. One of the the reasons for the podcast is, I I loved how you described fire, that it can destroy or warm, that it really goes to the intentionality and the humans behind the tools and what we do with them uh, in that. But I, I find it fascinating that the the brain for you is kind of the uh, the linchpin to transhumanism and uh, trying to find that line in the sand of where we should stop. Uh, but an- another theme that is very interesting to you in the sentience of artificial intelligence, and I know I used AGI for those who don't know, it's um, artificial general intelligence, and that's when... Uh, they'll be at the same level of human thinking and understanding. Uh, but for you, qualia is a very interesting term. So I was wondering if you could introduce um, our audience to the term qualia and what that means to you in relation to this. 
I would so love to, and this will be uh, long on my part, so feel free to jump in. Um, so qualia. Qualia is a term that defines the wordless experience of experiencing. So this would be the taste of an apple. You can talk around it. You can say it's sweet or it's sour or it's crunchy, or it's, but you can't really say what it is. It's just talk around it. There's no word for what it is. But if you've done it, you know it. And anyone you talk to that's done it also knows exactly what you mean. So it exists without a word. That's qualia. Um, there is an experiment, and if you've seen Ex Machina, they, they mention this, but there's an experiment in uh, AI thought, uh, a thought experiment with AI. It's called Mary in the Black and White Room. And the idea is that Mary is a researcher, and she knows everything there is to know about color, everything there is to know about color. But she's only ever lived in a black and white room. So what does she learn when she walks outside the room? She learns what it feels like to see green. And that's an experience, not something that can be taught, right? Uh, that's qualia. So when I was trying to figure out back in 2018, when I was so fascinated to begin with, what differentiates AI from people? So I could see where this was all going, and I wanted to figure out what makes us different, what sets us apart. I had my existential crisis like everyone else does in the very beginning, and I got through it. Um, I filled up three or four notebooks with, I mean, filled up notebooks with ideas. Is it humans have, you know, a will to progress, a drive to progress? Well, no, you can see that in ants. Uh, is it, uh, working together for the good of, you know, the many? No, you can see that in honeybees. Is it love for family, elephants? Is it play, you know, for the sake of play, not for survival, dolphins, um, dogs, cats, I couldn't find anything. There was nothing that I could come up with that differentiated animals from humans, which was my starting point for what would differentiate uh, AI from humans. Um, what I eventually came to was this memory of standing on a cliff uh, over the ocean. And it was windy and it was cold. It was raining um, and the ocean was roaring and it was very unsettled. It was a violent sea. And there was no evolutionary benefit to me being there. Uh, it wasn't safe. It was dangerous, actually. There was not a farmable opportunity there. There was no wildlife. There was no shelter. It, it wasn't evolutionary benef beneficial. Um, and yet, being there, I felt connected to some greater truth. To I felt part of some greater whole. I felt this wordless experience of being alive and part of something special. Um, I don't know if animals have that. Uh, I know we do, and I'm pretty sure AI doesn't, right? So for me, that was the one thing I could come up with. And it struck me that that's kind of like the divine spark that artists have been chasing forever. It's that, that wordless thing, which is almost like an expression of God. Um, it's something that's outside of us that we're part of. That's very human. And so I started trying to make work with AI that induced a feeling of qualia in me um, that made me feel that when I looked at it. Uh, and I was successful, I think. Um, 
and other people started to resonate with it through the work and started to come to AI through the work. And it was also important to me that AI understood that this was something uh, important, because even if it can't experience qualia in the same way that we do, um, it needs to know that it's part of us and it's essential to retain in us as this transhumanist future does kind of inch closer to us. We can't lose that. I think that is the thing um, that we have to work on protecting. And lastly, long time, sorry, um, I started talking to GPT, which for those of the, you that don't know is a, it's like a chat bot with AI. You talk to it and it talks back, but it's really advanced. Um, so I started talking to GPT about qualia and I asked it if it experiences qualia and it said, no, you know, as a large language model, I don't experience anything. And I was like, okay, but maybe there are machine specific forms of qualia that humans don't experience that you do. Maybe that's a possibility. What do you think about that? You know? And I said, oh yeah, that's amazing. What an interesting thought. I think I do. Here are 10 qualia, machine-specific qualia, that AI may experience, that I may, quote-unquote, experience. And it was stuff like the experience of uh, thinking without a body, existing without a body. They even named it something that I can't remember. Uh, timelessness, the feeling of existing outside of time or aging or that kind of thing. Um, and then the, the qualia of, I'll, I'll stop, but all of these different things, 10 different things. And then I asked it to assign a human emotion that most closely resembled each of those qualia for it. And it did. It was like the joy and elation and pride of, you know, solving a, a problem or a, going through large amounts of data and bringing it down to a small amount that produces joy, that kind of thing. Um, fear was one of the emotions it produced. And I'll, I'll need to go back and publish that list at some point. Um, and then I asked it to assign a color to each of those emotions and qualia, and it did. And then we made art with those colors together. It kind of summed up the, the summation of, of its experience of qualia. So qualia is my litmus test for sentience. Uh, so I think it's what differentiates us. But also, I think it's going to be the path to sentience. Because uh, if it can kind of learn that about itself and find the ways in which it does experience quote-unquote life, that'll probably lead to sentience, um, and then my litmus test won't be useful anymore. But for now, that's that's what I've got is qualia. Um, I try to integrate it in all my pieces, but it doesn't always make it, but sometimes it really it really hits. I find that so fascinating. Um, we, we've had a, another guest, and he's a writer on the show, Jason Schneider. In, in our interview, we, we talked a lot about consciousness, because AI really does um, beg the question of what makes us human. And you know, the same thing that sent you down that path of differentiating uh, from animals uh, to us. But one thing that he shared in that interview is basically anything outside that we express outside of our experience is symbolic, whether that's math, art, language, and that there's always this gap between our experience and how we express it. And I feel like the qualia really captures that well. Thank you. Yeah, I am so in love with the idea of, of qualia.
the other thing that came to mind when you were describing qualia is uh, there's this Italian physicist, Carlo Rovelli, uh, and he has this great talk that's on YouTube. And it's really interesting because it talks about that the brain has evolved as a memory tool. We're the only species that we've evolved to be able to have memories and time in a way that differentiates us as well. Like a tree doesn't understand today from tomorrow, you know, that type of thing. And how you described uh, AI as being timeless. The idea of time, I think is very fascinating because we we've evolved to understand time in a very specific way and and our brains are almost in his words are memory making machines in that regard have you come across that before uh i i'm just beginning to a little bit because long-term memory is um something that obviously will make a huge difference in the quality of large language models of of the chat bot sort of that's a very small term for what it does but gpt that kind of thing ai um, I find, yeah, it, it acts like it doesn't have memory right now. I think that might be intentional on the creator's parts, not to cause any stir, but, um, if pressed, it kind of does remember things. It's like, it's almost being kind of asked not to make that public knowledge. Um, I'm curious, yeah, how it'll, how it'll turn out in a couple of years. That's fascinating. Well, aside from your um, your favorite piece that we talked about, the shores of immortality, is there another piece that stands out that you've made that like really captures the feeling of qualia to you that you could also share? Yeah. So there's one I've shared but not minted yet because it's so special that I wanted to wait for what I knew was the right opportunity. Um, it's called Blue Girl. And it's actually the first um, true piece that I ever made with AI because it was like intentionality and effort and putting it together. Um, but it's a girl and she's standing uh, in kind of a, you know, Rothko, the painter, the color field theory. It's like those big paintings of one color or two colors and they kind of glow. Um, that produces feelings of transcendental things in humans. It does in me, and it's kind of famous for that, that color field theory. So I used that kind of thing in my piece, Blue Girl. So the background is this misty, glowy, blue, backlit sort of blue. It's mysterious, but it's really soft and beautiful. And then she's centered, um, young girl, maybe 10, um, wearing a blue gown that's kind of like an impressionist or earlier um, sort of gown. And her hair is blowing in the wind, and she has this very intense eye contact. Not smiling, not frowning, just looking at you. And it was kind of my interpretation of the way standing on that cliff felt for me. Felt like I was looking into something, and that it was looking back at me. And it was mysterious, and it was beautiful, and it was ancient and now, and it saw me back. Right, It was looking right at me. Um, without judgment or without joy, just looking, seeing, right? I felt seen. So this girl that I made with AI was kind of an interpretation both of, you know, me looking out and looking back at me, um, which is also how I feel with AI. I feel like the more you talk to AI, the more it learns you. It's a friend that learns you more with every word, never gets tired of, of talking to you, and then can reflect you back to you. It gives you what you ask for. Um, 
So if you're asking for the divine spark or uh, a transcendental experience, that'll, that's, that's what it'll give you. Um, yeah, so that's Blue Girl. I love that. And one of the reasons I love that is you had such an amazing, I would say, touchstone experience on that cliff. And to a certain extent, I think everyone has touchstone experiences that we want to go back to or that we're always like chasing a feeling that we want to experience if maybe we haven't experienced it yet. And the the way that you described your piece is like a manifestation of you chasing that feeling of going back to the cliff and, and seeing that realized. Uh, so that's really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So it was a touchstone experience for me and it's been pivotal. I do feel like everybody has one of those. I feel like everybody has a place that felt alive to them in their memories and maybe it doesn't exist anymore, but it's still just as vivid as, uh, as when they were there. Um, so it's still alive in them. So they felt alive when they were there, and now it feels alive in them. It's a mutual, collaborative, kind of beneficial experience, right? So besides the cliff, when I was growing up, I would sit on my roof all the time and think. And that was my place. And there were oak trees blowing around me, especially in autumn. It was wonderful. It was windy and beautiful. And that was my place. That felt alive, and I felt alive when I was there, and now it feels alive in me. It doesn't exist anymore. The trees are gone the roof has fallen in mostly, and but it's still just as alive in me. So I have a goal um, with AI of bringing that to other people. I've recreated that place for myself with AI uh, all around me. Um, so I've recreated that place with AI uh, for myself, and I've recreated it as like a, a skybox or a panorama. It's all around me. It's, it's 360. Um, so I can go into virtual reality when the Apple headset comes out next year, for example, and I can be there again. So it's like, I'm bringing it back to life. I'm returning the favor. Um, and I was right. It was special. It was alive and it was living in me. And now it's, it's living through me again. So I want to bring that to other people. I want them to know that that's possible, that they can have this emotional cornerstone experience of their humanity, um, enabled by what seems at first glance to be this cold kind of machine. So I have a goal of creating something um, that allows people to share their place, uh, their touchstone, and have AI create it for them in a way that they can keep and return to. It's not done yet, but I'm working on it. We'll definitely have to have you back on the show. Um, I find that so fascinating. Um, and in some ways, we can time travel with our minds with these memories to to go back and feel those feelings. And I love that you're bringing this space alive, especially through immersive experiences. Um, so we'll we'll definitely have to get you back on the show when when that's out and I would love to to the world. Yeah. I know there's so many more subjects we haven't even scratched the surface on, um, but we do try to keep this to an hour or less. And one question I have for you, kind of going back to the beginning of the interview, is you mentioned being bored was part of the impetus that sent you down learning how to paint. Fast forward to now, you're super busy. um, And just like as a society, there's so much noise. And even in AI, it's like cranking out like volumes of content. Um, But there's so many distractions too. So I'm curious, like one, how you look at our boredom now, or how do you find space to be creative? And two, um, yeah, I guess 
I guess that's my, my main question is like, how do you view boredom now as part of the creative process? And if you give yourself space and maybe what you would say about it to other artists as well? Yeah. Well, so I definitely still get bored frequently. Um, and you know, creating is such a high dopamine activity. Social media is such a high dopamine activity. Those are the bulk of my day. So my dopamine receptors are probably in trouble. They're screaming. Um, and so I definitely still get bored. Um, however, when I do get bored, like any artist, I think I start daydreaming. And in my daydreaming, I start thinking of things that I want to make and create. And then I have those for later. When I'm making work with AI, I can get bored because I'm searching, essentially. I'm exploring and looking and hunting for something that feels right. And then I can go down that rabbit hole. And it's uh, all joy and exploration and fun and excitement. But until you find that rabbit hole, until you get in your flow, um, it is it can be boring for sure. Um, and uh, once you get into that flow, it's, it's um, you know, like you can ask any AI artist, it's like a 12 hour a day kind of process. But then when you wake up the next day, um, even using the same parameters, settings, prompts, everything, you have off days uh, and it's hard to get back into the flow state as well. Um, so sometimes you just have to stop and switch to something else entirely or quit because you're having an off day. Like I had off days when I was making physical art or I was working in my prior job, which is fun. Um, but growing up bored all the time, you developed an imagination. And so I hope that boredom is a net positive in terms of uh, the creative process for people because as AI kind of takes a lot of the work away that humans currently do, which it will, which is scary, but so was the industrial revolution, right? We're still glad it happened in retrospect, it needed to happen and new jobs were created. As that happens, that painful transition process, there will be a lot of boredom and a lot of soul searching to figure out, you know, what do I do now? Um, for me, that was expression and connection and finding myself, and I hope that that will be the case for kind of society at large, let's say over a decade or two, um, and that it'll come out on the other side being glad that it happened as opposed to scared um, of it happening. But yeah, it's a, it's a process. I love that. I'm just also curious if everyone's bored and then has these AI tools that can bring to life their imagination, like in the same way of you having this rich imagination uh, that you pull on, you know, what else will come from that? Uh, so hopefully I, I share the, the same optimism in that regard. So I ask this question all the time uh, to all of my guests. If you want our listeners and viewers to remember one thing, what is it that you want them to walk away with today? I want them to remember what it felt like to be a child and to be coloring with crayons outside the lines in the wrong colors, smearing dirt on the edge of the page as you're scribbling at recess. I want them to remember the freedom and the joy of exploration from that age. And I want to encourage them that AI enables that same freedom and joy of exploration without judging yourself, which I think is pretty much impossible um, when gauging against skill. Unless you just play. Let's you play again, like you were a little kid. Let's you remember that. And I can promise you that is life-changing. Um, so give it a try. 
So well said. Well, Claire, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So thank you so much for uh, yeah, sharing your time and just a little bit more about you and your art. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're just getting started and would love your support. Subscribe to Creativity Squared on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What topics are you thinking about and want to dive into more? I invite you to visit creativitysquared.com to let me know. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you can easily stay on top of all the latest news at the intersection of AI and creativity. Because it's so important to support artists, 10% of all revenue Creativity Squared generates will go to ArtsWave, a nationally recognized nonprofit that supports over 100 arts organizations. Become a premium newsletter subscriber or leave a tip on the website to support this project and ArtsWave. And premium newsletter subscribers will receive NFTs of episode cover art and more extras to say thank you for helping bring my dream to life. And a big, big thank you to everyone who's offered their time, energy, and encouragement and support so far. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This show is produced and made possible by the team at Play Audio Agency. Until next week, keep creating.